Well, thank you so much, Scott and Jackie, for joining me today. You know, very excited to talk about you know, the mission and vision of the Phoenix, its founding vision and its efforts so far and a, and a little bit about its its future and really a topic that I think affects, you know, all of our lives, whether it's family, whether it's friends, who, whoever it may be, I think sobriety and whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's whatever, it, it kind of just affects us all as a community day to day, really. So I think what you guys are building is is essential and, and, and kudos for getting this far. Uh, but before we kind of get into that, Scott, do you want to kind of just walk us through the journey of, of the phoenix like what was the catalyst for it what's a little bit of your background and and what was your you know reason for founding it yeah sure i mean i think it's i was probably the one who spent the most time on it in the beginning because the other folks that sort of co-founded had had uh, other jobs at the time and um sort of won them over to the phoenix side over time but like um basically i had gotten sober in boston by getting into a boxing gym and and something about that you know climbing in the ring for the first time started to heal some of the self-esteem wounds that Mm -hmm. were really the primary driver of my addiction from experiencing some early childhood trauma but but, you know, that then led me to triathlon and climbing and all these other activities. And over the years, I started to sort of kind of gather these friends around me that that just wanted to get up at five in the morning and go have an adventure rather than stay up till five in the morning. And Jackie <laughs> just one of those. We used to go climbing together and ice climbing and on the White Mountains in New Hampshire and then moved to Colorado and befriended a, another climber who's in recovery and named Ben Court. And, you know, so we were all sort of talking about like, how could we share this stuff with others? Because, you know, as in my lived experience, you know, as somebody in recovery, this this stuff, every time I stood on top of a mountain across the finish line, it healed mm. those self-esteem wounds. But, you know, Jackie had this clinical lens on it, but was also a climber herself. And Ben had worked in experiential education with youth. And we started to think, like, how do we share this with other folks? And I didn't know anything about starting a nonprofit. Fortunately, I had a friend who was a lawyer who like did the paperwork for us for free and and then we got a notice back that we were officially a nonprofit and you know worked on the name you know call it the Phoenix it was originally called Phoenix Multisport because we were mostly athletic focused um, but we switched it to the Phoenix because we realized that sort of any meaningful activity that people come together around can help others rise and you know, we, we do everything now from uh, CrossFit and yoga classes and cycling and climbing. That's still part of our programming to uh, social events and music and art and all these other different activities. And if you're 48 hours clean and sober, then, you know, check the box. That's the price of admission. And while you're there, you have to adhere to an ethos that's really designed to create a nurturing space. So that's kind of how it got started. But, you know, really it was a you know, printing off a bunch of t-shirts with a Phoenix logo on it and giving them yeah. to my friends in recovery and folks that believed in it and allies and supporters like Jackie and others. And, you know, she drafted the first version of the mission statement. So, um, you know, she was, she was there from the beginning. Well, that's a great, uh, segue to, to you, Jackie, and talk a little bit about, you know, your background and, you know, Scott said he, you kind of put a clinical, clinical lens on this. Talk a little bit about your background and maybe the people you, you've dealt with through, through your career and life and what made you decide to say, hey, I want to dedicate a lot of my time to, to the Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, I, I often joke with people that I didn't choose the Phoenix. It chose me, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that some of the best things in life happen that way. Um, my journey as a clinician, frankly, started from a very young age. I was a peer counselor in high school 
And so I had this, I don't know, uh, maybe a calling or a a curiosity about how to help people and um, recognizing that there's just a huge need to try and help people live their best lives. And I thought being a clinician was really the best way to do that. So for upwards of 20 years, 15, 20 years, I worked as a clinician primarily with youth and families. And in that work, you know, my sort of sweet spot was helping folks who struggle with trauma and had complex mental health challenges. And um, and so as, you know, Scott and I were off climbing, it started to dawn on me that actually there was a an opportunity through community to help people heal. And that as a clinician, I didn't have a, you know, we didn't have a moratorium on healing. In fact, you know, right. y- you look at churches and other, you know, organizations like communities, people helping people is sort of at the essence of where most healing happens in the everyday. And so at the time that we were starting, the Phoenix was also heading back to graduate school. I wanted to get my PhD and do some research and thought that maybe by better understanding, you know, what, you know, got in people's way or what sort of interventions might be more helpful <clears throat> that I could empower social workers to to do better um, by the people they were serving. And, you know, I, I had seen in my work how often substance use disorder was at the root of, you know, whether it was a child custody issue or trauma issue or justice involvement, it was just always, always there. And so as the idea for the Phoenix started to kind of grow and as as we started to evolve it, um, I just kept thinking it's really a no brainer. Like we had to kind of step into this and do something different. And so I finished the first couple of years of my um, coursework for my PhD and then um, did some time out in Colorado helping get the Phoenix launched and building kind of the essence of the initial model. And then over time, you know, I, I imagined after I graduated with my PhD, I was going to go into academia and um, sure. And Phoenix just kept getting bigger and bigger and our model was evolving and what we were learning was driving impact and people's lives were changing. And I I realized, you know, one day that I, I no longer wanted that other pathway because mm. through what we were doing, I could drive, I could support and enable more profound change than I ever could um, as a clinician working one-on-one with individuals or even teaching cohorts of social workers to go back into the mm. industry. But there was really something more powerful about what we were doing. And frankly, you know, we were able to build something that went around the more traditional systems of care yeah. to reach people in a way that they'd never been reached before. So I'm sure we can dig into a lot more, yeah, that's, a lot of those pieces, but that's sort of how I landed here. Before we kind of get into like, get into the to nitty gritty a little bit, I want to talk just about the scope of what you guys have built so far. Like where are we at in, in the Phoenix timeline, like community base across the country, whether it's cities, states, like give, give us a couple of facts and figures because they're pretty impressive uh, of where the community and the organization is at the moment. Sure. Uh, a couple of years ago, we set a goal for ourselves to grow our community uh, a million strong. And as of uh, I don't know, a month or so ago, we were we exceeded 200,000 members into our community. And the acceleration rate is is crazy. So last year, for example, um, we went into the year with, you know, less than 100,000 people. And we ended the year at, you know, close to 200,000 people. So we added 100,000 people in the same year that we actually <laughs> reached 100,000 people. Wow. So this, this doubling of our impact and our reach has happened, you know, kind of year over year for the last several. And um, 
it's 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 continuing to amplify. Amazing. Scott, do you want to kind of go into exactly what maybe the Phoenix is, right? When somebody asks you about it, that's, you know, you're, you're at dinner or something or, or wherever you might be and you're talking to somebody and they ask, oh, okay, well, what is the Phoenix? What, what does it do? How do you, how do you explain the scope of it all? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I often just say it's a, it's a free, sober, active community that's focused on fueling and igniting a movement that transforms the way our country is approaching addiction. Mm. And we do that through the inherent sort of transformative power of meaningful activities and through the community and the connections with others that are built up around that. And, um, and then people are like, often are like, well, what, how do you do that? You know, and there's like all these <laughs> yeah, steps yeah, to get yeah, there. But yeah. really any meaningful activity that somebody wants to lead as a Phoenix event is is sort of um, contained by this this ethos that we're here to lift each other up, not pull each other down. And um, and in the in that spirit, we we help help each other dream what's possible in our recovery. And also, what's happened over the last few years is allies and supporters have started to come as well to Phoenix. And what we're seeing now is that we're really all rising from from the ashes of something. We are all you know, the ashes of the human condition, right? Like we're all sort of rising from something. And by doing that in nurturing community, it allows all of us to believe in ourselves, even if we don't yet, you know, have that belief on our own. Um, so, you know, you show up at, at an event, you're welcomed, we circle up, we talk about the ground rules of the ethos. Um, but but after that, we just sort of like high five or fist bump and tie into the climbing rope or get on the yoga mat or start the art night event. And um, what what really happens is often, you know, the weight of, of life is on your shoulders coming in and, you know, maybe the stuff you're unpacking or dealing with from your your substance use um, is, is weighing heavy on you or you're feeling triggered that day and you're worried about relapsing. And by the end of the Phoenix event, you're kind of laughing and joking with your Phoenix friends and you feel supported and, and you know, maybe the next day you're there supporting others who are in a tough moment. But really what's happening is, you know, you're, you're coming for the activity, but you're staying for the friendships. And it's in those friendships that we, that we begin to heal. And, um, you know, one reason we've had the growth that Jackie is, you know, sort of shared about is that we had folks reaching out from across the country wanting Phoenix yeah. in their communities. So in, in sort of, instead of us sort of being, um, something that hindered that growth, we just wanted to get out of the way and empower people to start Phoenix themselves. And so most of our new events are added now by volunteers across the country. Wow. How many states are you guys in now? 40, 41 actually, 41, 41. states and a, I think about 170 communities now. So wow. almost everywhere. Yeah. It <laughs> we'll also there. doesn't take into consideration our impact via our virtual platform because through virtual, yeah. we're now in countries around the globe. We have people joining yep. from Ireland, from Dubai, from New Zealand. Um, it's really wild. I want to talk about, Jackie, like, you know, you've kind of dealt with it from the traditional side, how we deal as a, as a country, maybe as, as a society with substance abuse. I guess, what does this, that traditional framework do right? maybe, but then what can it do much better? The activity part of all this, I think is such, it's such a profound impact is when we think of, you know, overcoming substance abuse and addiction, it's sitting in a dark room in this, like, you know, with cafeteria chairs and, and, and talking 
it's a very somber, very depressed atmosphere, it feels like. You know, when we think about when we think about getting through this and, and talking, but when you're outside and you're you, you take that sort of mantra and you you put it in outdoor activities, whether it's running, whether it's hiking, whether it's through the arts, whether it's through music, whatever it might be, that activity portion seems to be so powerful rather than traditionally we fe- seem to be very stagnant and very stationary when dealing with this issue. I guess talk about some of the traditional things that that we do right that we don't want to you know have a negative word about, but also some things like, look, we've been dealing with this thing for so long, like over 50 years, we need to change some things. We need to innovate. We need to do some disruption within the space. I mean, talk about both, both sides of the coin there. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the the thing with clinical work is there's a lot of research that shows it works, right? That there's, yep. you know, whether it's DBT, CBT, group therapy, inpatient, you know, the research shows that it works and it changes people's lives. The biggest challenge is access. So Mm, when you have millions of people who are Mm -hmm. struggling with alcohol and drugs and only, you know, six and a half percent are able to access care, that creates a problem. So it doesn't matter how good it is. If you can't access it, it's not going to do you any good. And so I think access is a huge challenge that we're trying to take on. And then the other thing that I think is really important is that you know, again, like removing it from a, it's not a problem of the clinicians or the failing of individuals, but looking at it from a systems perspective, the rehab industry alone is a $40 billion industry. Mm-hmm. We are mm-hmm. currently facing a shortage of clinicians who are even willing to work in the space. So if we were to double the amount we spend, we still wouldn't have the talent needed to actually reach 15% of the population. And so I think it's just important to step back sometimes and and look at that reality and just say like, is throwing more money at doing the same thing going to actually get us anywhere? Maybe we'll get an incremental shift. But mm-hmm. if the last 10 years have shown us anything, the answer is actually no, because the problem has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And so I think from a kind of structural standpoint, that that's a challenge. I would also say there's these kind of cultural norms in society that have really kind of influenced um, where we're at today. We have built our society in a very individualized, pull yourself up by the bootstraps sort of way where people are responsible for themselves. You know, during the Industrial Revolution, there was a mass exodus of people leaving their families and never going back. And so communities started to shift. And we've not, we've undervalued community in our society. Churches have also started to, you know, come undone and there's fewer people leveraging that kind of community. And I think that's the that's one of the biggest gaps. And if we learned anything during the pandemic, community and connection is what we all crave the most. And if you look at the research, the research shows over and over again that community is what heals. And if you go back to that first question you asked about what works in the clinical world, like For clinicians, what matters most is the relationship. There's been research that shows it doesn't matter what type of intervention you're deploying. Again, CBT, DBT, family systems theory, whatever. But if you have a relationship with the person you're working with, they're far more likely to see improvements. And so that's the kind of thing we started looking at when we were designing the Phoenix. And we said, what can we take from the learnings in the clinical world that keeps us from doing clinical work, but that can actually be impactful. And so it was very clear from day one that relationships were going to be essential. 
The other piece that's really essential is in a clinical environment, you're really creating a a safe environment where people can be vulnerable. And so whether it's, again, drawing upon experience as a clinician or even looking at organizational psychology where they talk about um, in order for employees to be successful, you have to have psychological safety in the, the organization. You have to have an environment that's nurturing and supportive and empowering. And so we started to take those concepts and mold them and test them and try some things out. And what we found is that when we can create an environment that is psychologically safe, that people feel connected, where they can find meaning and hope, they're far more likely to live really well. They're significantly less likely to relapse. They're significantly more likely to stay sober. They report improved health, mental health, quality of life, hope, meaning. It's across the board. We see these powerful outcomes. And frankly, it's just super simple. And the other thing that we learned from kind of the clinical world that I think is really powerful is this idea of meaningful activities. And it's been proven out time and time again. But when you work with kids, you seldom sit down with a child and you say, tell me about your past. Or I'm going to, you know, ask you to do this thing. And I want you to share your deepest, darkest secrets. Like, you don't do that. You, you grab a basketball and you play hoops, you have a checkerboard and you play checkers. And during those kind of activities is when build trust and sharing can happen. And so for us, leaning in on those activities, again, it comes from that space where, you know, it's working out side by side, walking up that mountain together and sharing the experience where maybe somebody can carry more weight because somebody else is struggling or somebody might need water and you can share with them like in those moments where you're doing these things that are really challenging in a, a parallel way, that's when trust is built. And those are that's how you deepen those relationships. So again, relationships, psychological safety, and a recognition that our current system isn't able to really address this situation has put us in this place of being innovative, and coming up with something that, frankly, we think is going to disrupt the entire sector and allow millions of people to live their best lives. And also, I think an interesting point of all this is the financial burden is not necessarily an aspect that they have to overcome because that's a barrier to entry, right. I think, for all this, right? Is you, you have so much going on in your life and you can't afford to get better. Like that's also probably a hindrance for many people. You talk about like try to disrupt something a little bit. How does that work when do you partner with, do you try to partner with local, state, federal government? Like, do they adhere to, to your mission and vision, right? Do they agree with it or they want to be strictly that? Like, who are the partners in all this that have really realized that this method and philosophy really works well? I'm going to, I'll give you a couple of things and then I'm going to toss it to Scott because there's so much that we could get yeah. into here. You know, we partner with, other recovery organizations with treatment, with the justice system. Um, we partner with family organizations. We do not do what they do. And so there is right. no threat that we're going to come in and replace them. All we know is that when we work together, we can extend the impact that one another has, where one plus mm-hmm. one equals three, right? Like we can really drive transformational change when we come together. And so the Phoenix is entirely committed to partnering with anyone who's aligned from a vision and value standpoint so that we can magnify this impact and really start to shift the paradigm to one of far more bottom up and, and, and empowerment. And I'll say one of the kind of current lanes that we're really driving at around partnerships is with the music industry. And so we're Hmm. partnering with large scale festivals, for example, like Jazz Fest, Mm -hmm. 
Urban and Beyond. You know, these are festivals that have historically been pretty um, alcohol and drug forward in terms of norms, who are welcoming in a sober, supportive tent and starting to look at what their practices are and their structures are to improve the experience for folks who are choosing not to, to drink or use drugs. Because we know that over 30% of Americans are living alcohol and drug free. And so it's a huge constituency. And so I think that's going to be one of our more interesting partnerships in the upcoming days. I think sort of backing up a little bit to the disruptor side of things, like um, we, and I, and I think I'd love to share this for anyone listening who is trying to be a disruptor in a space that seems very sort of institutionalized, like a fabric of our society is, is forged and there's no way to change it. I would just encourage those folks to continue to, to push forward. And when they, when they're thwarted to find, try to find ways around whatever obstacle it is, because I would say there's a, there was a period in time of Phoenix's growth where Jackie and I often felt like, are we, do people think we're taking crazy pills here? Because this is like a totally different approach to addressing addiction where there really aren't even clinicians in the room. There's just a peer who has walked the path a few steps ahead of you and they're helping you navigate that, those pitfalls. And it just happens to be on a mountain bike or, or in a climbing harness or whatever we're in and it's free and anybody can come as long as they're 48 hours sober. And, and we just, started going back to this mantra of like when we hit that block in the road and we didn't know how to get around it, we would just do good Phoenix. We would just be there for the people that are coming, help them rise. And by doing so, they were also helping us rise in our own ways. And by by continuing to just focus on our core and doing it well, we started bringing alongside us people that also viewed um, the need for disruption as something critical in our country. And and um, we found Stand Together Foundation, and, and they're a group of philanthropists who, who have this deep belief in people and the intrinsic strength in people, and that sometimes we just have to help sort of move barriers out of the way for, for that strength to be expressed and for that person to thrive in life. And um, they saw the magic of Phoenix just in the culture that we had built because Phoenix is really founded in that belief in people. As soon as you get into Phoenix and you start rising yourself, then you're empowered to turn around and help lift somebody else up by leading other Phoenix events. And that's how we were growing. And and they came alongside us and said, if, if you sort of re- rebuilt Phoenix today um, to meet the need in our country, how would we do it differently? And we started really sort of looking at how we could activate volunteers at scale. And we started to realize we needed to integrate technology in a different way. You know, you're talking about a nonprofit that was started before Facebook existed, you know, and a lot has changed since then. And we we built our mobile app and we started, you know, looking for folks in communities across the country that wanted to to bring Phoenix to their town and help their loved one or be a beacon of hope to others in their own recovery. And we started training them and activating them and getting them started and getting them on the app. And, you know, and now essentially within 48 hours, you can raise your hand to start a Phoenix program in your community and we can get you up and running. And because of our technology platform, we can connect all those folks across the country with other volunteers doing similar things and they sharpen each other. And we actually, you know, start to lean on each other for our unique gifts and by coming together, we can help a lot of other folks rise. And really what's happening there is there's a self-actualization journey 
for the folks that are both volunteers and Phoenix members and Phoenix staff. And in that journey, we find a meaningful purpose in life. And really, that's what we're all looking for. You know, like they've even done some research on folks leaving the criminal justice system. Certainly, you need a job coming out of prison, but a job with purpose plays out differently in your life than just a J-O-B, you know, and the likelihood of you going back into the criminal justice system if you find that life of purpose goes down. And I think the same is true for addiction. When I started finding a life of purpose in recovery, that was some of the antidote that I needed to, to, ins- to inoculate me against my substance use. So I think being a disruptor, you have to kind of carve it out of the wilderness, but, but share, share your vision loudly because you will find people that will come alongside you if you do that. Something Jackie had mentioned before about the 40 billion, I think you said 40 billion rehab sort of industry, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I kind of just want to talk about that for a second, because again, I'm sure there's positives, I'm sure there's negatives, right? But when you're dealing with that market size, there's going to be a lot of players in it. There's going to be a lot of interested parties. There's going to be people that might not align. Well, it's just, this is a business model, right? Like look at private prisons, like, but I guess, how would you look at the, the rehab industry as a positive or negative in this sort of overall mission of, you know, sobriety at scale? you know, and getting it to the to the right people. Access is a big thing you had mentioned. But I guess talk about the industry, much like the clinical side, what does the, the rehab part industry do well versus what can it do a lot better at? I think it's a complicated question, honestly, because there are some amazing rehab rehabs out there. And then there are some really awful ones. You've got yeah. the whole spectrum. Yep. And I think that the problem here is kind of the underlying values that that drive those organizations. If you're in the work to improve people's lives, you will make money because you're going mm-hmm. to create real impact for people. Whereas if you approach the work to make money first because you want to capitalize on a market opportunity, you're far less likely to be one of those organizations that's going to drive the biggest impact. And so even at the Phoenix, our approach has always been kind of that, and Scott spoke to this before, a bit of a people first approach, where if we can drive, if we can create real value for our members, they're far more likely to then pick up the torch and come back and volunteer Mm -hmm. or tell someone else about it. And so I think that's sort of the differentiator in the market um, within the rehab industry, as well as kind of the way in which we think about things. It's like, and I think it's what sets us apart, frankly, is that that real people first approach. One reason we see so much of the resource around this issue flow through that space is that sort of as a society, we have sort of started to land in a place where we're looking to these experts to sort of solve problems for our communities. And I think, you know, when you really think of community, you know, sort of inherent in that that sort of name is that we are there for each other. We're actually there to help lift each other up. And so the idea that some expert's going to sort of swoop into our neighborhood or our town or wherever and fix some of the most complex problems Mm. that we're facing, it's just not very likely, you know? And I think if we actually look to each other, then then we can start leaning on each other. And because we're so close to the issue, we can actually become the solution. And, and I think that that's, 
one of the mental models that might need to shift, uh, you know, in that sort of more clinical space or more sort of top-down approaches to this issue is that thinking of people struggling with substance use as a problem to be solved, as opposed to thinking of them as actually the solution that in they that each person who's who's experiencing this has in inside them this intrinsic strength. And if we can just create a space where that strength can be expressed, that they can actually be part of the solution to, to stem the tide of the addiction crisis in our country. And it's just a totally different way of approaching the issue. Um, but by doing so, you then start to think of the solutions totally differently as well. Yeah. There's so many questions I, I want to ask, and there's so many roads to go down. And, and one I, I want to talk about it is, is really... Look, you have so many people that come into come into the organization, whether it's alcohol, whatever it may be, whether it's opioids, and now there's sort of fentanyl, right? There's this mega drug. I have a a brother of mine who 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 is a is a cop, and you know he's works with the DEA. He he works on the ground every day, and he says it's and he's been doing it for you know 15 years right now, and he just says it's it, it's he becomes so overwhelmed, and he and he's just like. It's he's not defeated because he's he's great at what he does, right? But it's just like it's almost an insurmountable goal. How do you get people off of this, right? How do you create that environment where a person at their lowest time in their life that is dealing with the greatest drug of all time, like how does that? How do you guys deal with that over the last three years, right? Because it seems like that has really evolved over the last few years. That there has just been this mega spread of really high level high-level drugs that just destroy communities so much. But I know that's a long question, and I know it's very difficult to even talk about, but I just wanted to get your perspective on, on how do you see that dealing dealing with this issue like day-to-day? Yeah, I, there was a lot there. I'm sure Scott and I both have a lot Sorry, to say on yes. this one. But I'll, I'll like, I think the thing with the current crisis is that the lethality level is so high mm-hmm. that mm. it, it elevates and it it fuels us to work faster mm-hmm. and to be more innovative and really target that access challenge in, in a way that nobody has ever thought about um, targeting it before because it just takes one mistake for somebody who maybe even doesn't have a significant problem to right, to lose their right. life. And so yeah. that lethality is is driving us and driving us fast. I think the the way forward it's not straightforward. We need folks, you know, like your brother doing the work to get the drugs off the street. At the same time as we have to really get at the root cause of what is fueling addiction and recovery, which again, for in our kind of point of view or our mental model around this is it's really about disconnect from ourselves and others. And so if we can start to create communities and really make it more attractive and more fun and find more mm-hmm. meaning in right. being in community and living your best life, we think we can start to attract more people and tip the scales. And so it doesn't mean that we don't need formal treatment or you know police officers out doing their jobs. But while we're doing those things, we also have to shift our culture. Yeah. And so you know it's a, it's a long game. And we need more people like the Phoenix, frankly, who are innovating and trying to do these other things. I also want to share a story about um, um, some folks in Boston. So in Boston, we met some folks from the Boston EMS, and um, they weren't necessarily in recovery themselves, but they came in and they started working out with us. And 
in doing that, they realized that, you know, they, they were seeing folks on their very worst days when they were picking them up mm. off the streets, mm-hmm. overdose, when they, you know, are applying Narcan. And then next thing you know, the person's right back out using and it would break their hearts and it made them sad and angry. Yep. Right. And then they came in and they started wor- working out alongside our folks who are in recovery and started seeing people in their best days, living their best lives. And it was something that finally started to shift for the folk, for, for the folks who were working to, to have hope, right? To see that that change is possible. And so now they partner with us in an even deeper way. They're volunteering. They're actually bringing in um, some of their folks to do training in the facility that we operate in Boston as a way to kind of make sure that everybody sees that 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 change is really possible. Because if people don't believe change is possible, they are going to surrender, they are going to be hardened, and they're going to look at one approach, which is going to be far more punitive. And so we have to show people that there's another way. I think I was going to go there too, where Jackie (laughs) did with like, you know, I'd encourage your your brother to kind of maybe become a Phoenix volunteer and, and start a Phoenix event and bring some of his colleagues with him. Because I think what he'll see is exactly what Jackie's talking about, to see that, Mm -hmm. that, um, sort of intrinsic strength in people is is sort of, a, I always think of it as an ember that's within all of us. And sometimes it's just smoldering and it just needs some oxygen to catch fire. And and by coming into that safe and supportive space at a Phoenix event, it can catch fire. And then you'll start to realize that there's so many people out there successfully, you know, stepping into long-term recovery and supporting each other in that journey. And that the hope is actually in our communities everywhere, sometimes just it doesn't make it on the evening news, right? It doesn't make it into our social media feeds as much as some of the darker stuff does. And by doing that, then they can start creating that beacon of hope in their community for others. And it grows from there. And I think I'll just sort of double down on what Jackie said around like that disconnect from others. And, and, you know, in my story, I experienced early childhood trauma and adverse childhood experience. You can read about the the ACE score, um, which is adverse childhood experience and, and toxic stress, you know, as a kid. And so for me, that pain really drove me to finding a way to cope with it. And drugs and alcohol was my way to cope. And that worked for me for a while until it started to become destructive also. But, you know, to, to address things like fentanyl and other stuff, we need, you know, sort of a multifaceted approach. But I think Phoenix's work in that space is to help people sustain their recovery, transform their life, start that self-actualization journey and interrupt that generational transmission of that pain. Mm. So, you know, and, and, and I've seen this for myself. I'm now a father and I have two kids and the life that they will have and the home they will grow up in is very different than the home I experienced with alcoholism and a father with untreated mental illness, you know, and, and if, if, all of the folks coming through Phoenix's doors can interrupt that transmission to their, to the next generation, then we'll start getting ahead of it. And that's, that's the way we're going to stem the tide of this. I don't know if the demographics of the Phoenix, but like, is there a lot of young people versus older? Like what's, what's the sort of demographics there? Cause if you get, if you get young people in, that's obviously a huge. Yeah, we definitely have a substantial number of young people and it's highly impactful for young people. But the beauty is, is it, it, 
because it meets every individual where they're at, it is also beneficial for folks who are in their 30s or 40s, 50s or 60s. We were just mm-hmm. talking today on a call about the spread of our population, like the age range. And we have a 91-year-old that's come to the Phoenix Amazing. in the last year, right? So, and, and so, so huge. I, it, it really is, um, it's something that anybody can do because we meet people where they're at. We really are facing an epidemic of loneliness with upwards of 60% of the population of adults in America reporting mm. that they feel lonely. And when you look at young adults, 18 to 24, that's almost 80%. 80% of our young adults feel lonely. And if you think about the, I mean, that terrifies me, right? Because mm-hmm. if loneliness and disconnect is at the heart of the vast majority of our social challenges, how many of those folks are going to struggle with addiction, eating disorders, crime, right? You start to see it spiral. And so to Scott's point, if we don't start to get at those root causes that cause people to feel disconnected, then we are not as a society looking very hopeful. But having seen what the Phoenix can do and how community can heal these things, you can really start to flip the switch on that. And, and the world looks bright again. The last thing I'll end on here is, you know, about the future and which I have built so far is, is absolutely incredible. But when you look at the next decade, I guess, what are some of the goals and successes you would like to reach as, as an organization? I think one, one place for where there's a ton of opportunity is to continue to expand our digital platform, you know, our app. So if you go to the app store and just find the Phoenix, a sober community, you can jump on there. You can come to Phoenix events. You can become a volunteer and start Phoenix events if there aren't any in your, in your community already. And, uh, or you can add more if there are some, and it doesn't matter if you're in recovery or not. You just, we're just looking for folks that want to be part of this movement that changes the way the country is approaching addiction. And I think over time, the idea that we can start having other partners on our app that address different facets of this issue. Maybe it could be workforce development, or maybe it could be helping folks find housing or, you know, whatever it is. And, and there, thereby sort of the size of that communities continues to expand and more and more people are leaning into that ethos, this idea that we have this intrinsic strength and we can help each other rise. And there's an intrinsic strength within all of us. And, and, my dream for that part of the movement is that we start to change the way the top-down approaches approach this issue, right? Instead of Mm -hmm. trying to incarcerate our way out of the addiction crisis or just focus on a drug to get you off drugs or whatever it might be, we can start thinking of ways that we can help activate that intrinsic strength in people and shift the whole space into this more strength-based approach to to lots of issues, not just substance use, but but you know the, across a whole spectrum of things. So changing those mental models and activating communities at, with bottom-up solutions, I think, is is the magic. In a disruptor sort of way, like we really have a vision to annihilate addiction, and we believe that evaluate elevating community is the way to do that because through community, not only can we help people today, we can break those patterns and interrupt the intergenerational transmission that will protect society moving forward. And so we we know that that's the way to do it and we just want more people to join us. And yeah. so to Scott's point, you don't have to be a person in recovery. You just have to be someone who's looking for community and 
understands that being a part of a community is giving back. And so together we rise and we help one another. Thank you so much, Scott and Jackie. Was, I love this conversation. I could go for another another hour, but I want to be uh, cognizant of, of, of your time. So you know, thank you so much for, for everything you've done so far and best of luck for the next decades to come. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks so much. For, thanks for having us. 